let's pray together as we continue in worship. Heavenly Father, uh, you are good and your love endures forever. That's easy, it's easy to miss uh, because your love always has been and it is. And uh, just like the air we breathe, uh, the water we drink, uh, we often don't think about the significance of those things. They just are. But your love is even more foundational uh, to our lives than those basic necessities. And so thank you for being a good God who loves us. We pray for the lost, those who are living in the same world, in the same neighborhoods, the same workplaces that we are, but who are either totally unaware of you or aware of you and uh, revolting, willfully revolting against you. Uh, I pray that um, we would be salt and light. I pray that we would have uh, great opportunities to build trust relationships with them. Uh, we could live openly before them, even to the point of being willing to be hurt uh, in order that you, uh, Father, might be heard. Uh, give us boldness and give us wisdom to know how to love those uh, who are far from you. Um, and yeah, your spirit is with us even now. Uh, we pray for your power to engage uh, this time together. We pray for your power uh, to engage your kingdom uh, as it is already present in part. Whether we're washing dishes, uh, driving a car, going to work, we want to live all of life with you. So Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Point us back to Jesus uh, continually. And yeah, as we seek you this morning, as we seek you with our lives, we want to be more shaped into the likeness, the, the character of Jesus. Um, and I ask that this place, that this people, would we, we'd be a place where it's okay to not be okay. That as we, as we pursue you, we can be really open and honest about our lives. Because we're safe in your love. We open ourselves to you now, Father, as we, as we open your word. We need to hear from you to know how to live. Amen. So this is public knowledge, uh, so maybe you've heard, but recently uh, an airman at McConnell, uh, where I work as a guard chaplain, committed suicide. And as a chaplain, I'm kind of on the front lines of that fight, and it's a great enemy to our servicemen and women, but... To be honest, it's, it's a problem everywhere in our culture. The, the military gets a lot of attention uh, when those things happen, but it really is a problem society-wide. And so in the aftermath of this tragedy, uh, someone sent me a podcast, because, you know, podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time. But it, it, the podcast seemed to very much say and imply that all suicide is a result of mental illness. And I'm not an expert in mental health, um, but I just thought, you know, in my gut, I was like, that just does not sound right, that all suicide is, is the result of mental illness. So I went and processed it with a friend who's more of a subject matter expert, 
And just as I suspected, it turns out suicide is more complex than just mental health problems. Um, I'm not writing off mental health. That's, that's a significant piece. But in addition to that, uh, sometimes deep personal wounds that are not healed, but that just grow over time, like crushed hopes or broken families are at play in, in suicidal thoughts. Um, biblically, we know that there are spiritual forces of evil that are at work in the world. And, and we also know that in God's sovereignty, they're on a leash. But, but we know that there are spiritual forces of evil that wreck havoc. Uh, we also know that bad thinking, uh, neuroscience has, has showed us that your thinking produces connections in our brain. And so bad thinking over time leads to bad, unhealthy uh, neural connections that leads to continually destructive thoughts. Um, we know that peer influences or community is a factor for people's hope. Uh, if you're surrounded by hopelessness, uh, you're more likely to live in hopelessness. So there's all of these factors, and, and some of them are maybe at play more than others. It's often a combination. It could be all of the above. It could be some of the above. It could be something else. Um, we can't always clearly discern all these factors. I, I share all that at the start here to just say, Suicide is a complex issue, and to narrow it down to just, oh, it's mental health, it's, it's someone's, you know, biology that the chemicals are just off, like, maybe, but maybe not. And since I'm sharing about suicide, I think it's helpful, I, I want to I give this little uh, snippet. Uh, one of the most harmful misunderstandings about suicide is that mentioning it is bad. Mentioning suicide puts suicide in people's minds, and it does not. Not talking about that or any, any temptation is like not pulling a weed. Just because you don't mention, oh, there's a weed there, doesn't mean that the weed's going to go away, doesn't mean the weed's not there. It just means the weed's going to grow. So with, with, whether it's suicide or any temptation, like envy, greed, lust, anger, we should be bringing these things up. And... Uh, the only person each of us can fix is you, meaning primary responsibility. I, I can't fix my wife. I can't fix you. The only person I can really fix is me. So I just encourage you to uh, bring up the weeds in your life with each other uh, because not talking about it doesn't help. It actually, it actually hurts. But again, I bring this up to just highlight suicide is, is complex in nature. And we're in a section of Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus has been demonstrating the power of the kingdom of heaven. And he's doing it through miraculous means. And as I read this section, I'm just reminded, this is complex stuff as well. Casting out demons, healing people miraculously, raising them from the dead. Uh, we read it, and it's very black and white. Jesus spoke a word, and the demons were cast out. But, but these are complex issues. And when we run into complexities in life or in the Bible or in our experience, uh, we tend to forget it's a good thing that we don't have all the answers. Not having all the answers does not mean we don't have any answers, but the answers we do have are the ones we most need. It's a good thing we don't have all the answers because if we could fully conceive, if we could fully comprehend who God is and why he does all that he does, then how would God be any different than us? Our spiritual life is not the only place where faith is center stage. 
Tate and Alex got married a few months ago, and they didn't know everything about each other. They knew everything they needed to know. And that doesn't mean that they don't want to know more. That's part of what they signed up for, was knowing and being known until parted by death. It's the same way in our walk with God. It, it is a good thing that we don't have all the answers. We get to know him and be known by him and grow more and more. So when we're talking about miracles, we're talking about complex things. And I think there's two ditches that we need to kind of be aware of and avoid. One is we see these miracles happen. Uh, and when you read Matthew 8 and 9, it's like they happen, bang, 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 continually. And so there's a ditch of like expecting miracles to happen regularly. And then there's the ditch of, well, miracles don't happen regularly, so... You know, we, we kind of write them off and uh, we, we don't think they really happen anymore. And so it, it, kind of the, the, the middle ground is acknowledging you can't be a Christian without believing in miracles. The resurrection is a miracle. But that doesn't mean that Christians have to be irrational people thinking everything is a miracle. Because for everything to be a miracle, it kind of would subvert, it kind of undermine like what a miracle is by definition. So the birth of a child, it's amazing. It is wonderful, full of wonder, but it's not a miracle because it can be explained, not, maybe not fully, but it can be explained by natural and scientific laws. It happens every day. Miracles by definition don't happen every single day. But when you get a virgin birth, like the birth of Jesus, uh, that's a miracle right? So all that to say, the God who ordered this world and, and the natural order is, is a sign. It's a different kind of sign. It's the signs that are always there. Miracles are the signs that, whoa, they pop up and they're, they're unique. They don't go like everything else goes. The God who ordered this world is not limited by his order. So he can create miracles, but he does so always for a point. And so it's, it's complex, all of this is complex, but what I want us to see today is it's straightforward enough for us to understand what is the point of this miracle. And last week, we saw that the, the, the miracles pointed to faith. Jesus was challenging the audience back then, and he's challenging us today to trust him, to trust him with our lives. And, and this week, we're gonna see miracles happening again for, for a, similar, a similar point. So let's get into our text, which is Matthew 8, 14 through 23. It should be on the screen, so you can read along with me. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. And Jesus touched her hand, and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple came to Jesus, said, Lord, first let me go 
and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. And then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. So the, the aim of Matthew that I see, like Matthew's purpose in, in this little section, is that these demonstrations of kingdom power, right, healing and casting out demons, the aim, the purpose of these things was discipleship to Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to briefly walk through the structure of this passage in order to see that that's Matthew's point. And so in verses 14 and 15, you get that specific healing story of Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. Jesus touched her. She was healed. Then in verse 16, you get this general healing stories. Like he spent a whole evening curing many people of demon possession and of, of, of illness. And uh, that's kind of the second point, the, the second way this pas- passage is structured. And then in verse 17, you get a fulfillment of Isaiah, that Matthew likes this word fulfillment. We've, we've drawn out this theme as we've gone through his gospel. He's always either saying or implying that Jesus is fulfilling uh, the promises of God and the purposes of God. And then in 18 through 23, we see this kind of contrast of responses. People want to go with Jesus, but they don't end up going with Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to dig into that a little bit. So first, the, the first part, if you will, there's four parts to this, is this specific healing story. And going back to kind of the complexities of, of life and the complexities of stories like this, uh, we're kind of left with the question, why, why did Jesus heal her? I mean, you could make the argument that, you know, he healed her so that she could wait on him, but Jesus really doesn't need any help. Um, I think more than likely, uh, my best guess, and it's a guess, is he healed her for her encouragement, for the encouragement of Peter, Peter's wife. Um, But there's just a lot we don't know. Like, Jesus just healed Peter's (laughs) mother-in-law. And uh, how he did it, how the touch took away the fever, I don't know. Scientists can, you know, parse that out and, uh, you know, I don't know. But it's a miracle, we don't, we're not able to touch people like that and make fevers go away. Otherwise, I would have done it to a number of friends and family in the last couple weeks. But I can imagine that this, this is a memorable moment. This touched her life. It touched Peter's life, Peter's wife's life. And we don't know why, but that's why I think Matthew is kind of like drawing us in. He's drawing us in with this specific story. And then if you're not blown away with Jesus touching someone, uh, he gives you a whole evening full of miracles in verse 16, part two. This is kind of general healing. So he moves from specific out to general. In verse 16, when the evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Jesus and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And so it's easy for me to think, or yeah, about this uh, story, these stories here, this evening of healing. Just like, you know, you hear the evening news, right? Or you read the paper and it's, uh, for years, I never really felt very much when you hear about people's suffering in the news. It's just one story after another, after another of suffering, suffering, suffering. 
But each of these people that Jesus healed is just like Peter's mother-in-law who would have personally been encouraged, affected. There would have been a community of people around them that would have heard about it and been in awe of who Jesus is and what he did. Um, but really none of this, according to Matthew, none of that was like the primary purpose of why Jesus did these miracles, why a whole evening of healing. But instead, Matthew continues in verse 17, part three of the structure of this passage, he continues with fulfillment. He says, this is why Jesus did this in order to fulfill what Isaiah wrote about hundreds of years ago. Jesus is showing us who he is. All, all the miracles are signs and like a crosswalk sign or a stop sign, they point you to a reality. The stop sign says the reality is you don't have the right of way right here. This danger, if you think you have the right of way, you need to stop. A crosswalk sign, you don't say, oh, there's a crosswalk. You, you look for people, right? Signs always point to something else. And, and these signs are pointing to the person of Jesus, who he is. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He calls people to realize it, to act and to choose accordingly. And this is where I see Matthew driving this whole passage that we read. is part four, verses 18 through 23. I'm going to reread it, and I want you to just listen. Listen for the contrast of the word disciples. Listen to the contrast, the difference of responses. So when Jesus saw the crowd around him, Jesus said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Does that sound like a pretty good ministry strategy? Lots of people coming. Hey, let's leave them. <laughs> then a teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes and birds have better homes than I do. Another disciple said to Jesus, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Basically, Jesus is saying, who are you going to choose? Your dead dad or me? And Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. That last sentence, Jesus got into a boat and his disciples followed him. I couldn't help but notice that's the same word as the disciple who asked Jesus, first let me go and attend to my dad's funeral, my dad's burial. Same, same word, disciple, disciples. But one of them very much seemed to follow him. I mean, Jesus, he seemed to, he seemed to leave this crowd just with a boat full. There wasn't other boats following based on what Matthew seems to be saying. Everybody saw the power. Everybody saw the miracles. And many, it seemed like many were willing to follow, but on their own terms and not on Jesus' terms. Jesus seemed to leave with just as many as he came with. So why would Jesus leave? Well, apparently his mission is not many followers. It was faithfulness to his father. And the crowd had intentions of we will. We will follow you. 
but they didn't follow through. They were more committed to having a comfortable place to stay, more committed to pressing family matters. And we can read this passage of Jesus and easily turn these into rules. Like, here's a rule. As a Jesus follower, you can't have a bed and be a Christian. Or at least not a comfortable bed, right? Because Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have any place to lay my head. So if you really want to follow Jesus, get rid of your bed. That, that's not what he's saying. We can also turn this into a license. Like, you don't have to be a good family member as a Christian because Jesus told this guy, look, you need to prioritize me above your family. And so we can wrongly turn this into a license of you don't have to be a good family member if you're following Jesus. And that's not what he's saying. But Jesus is driving at, okay, you've seen my power. You've seen who I am. How important will I be in your life? More important than your own comfort, more important than your own family. If you're putting Jesus first, you're actually doing what's best for your family. Family is a gift from God, but family or comfort, they're both gifts from God. They will never make a sufficient God. To use Jesus' words, he said, he said later, losing your life is the only way to find it. And that sounds crazy. That sounds counter, counterintuitive. But that doesn't make it any less true. It's still true. So again, Matthew's aim, and I believe what Jesus was doing here, is that rather than, you know, fanning into flame this fire of energy that comes from the, the miraculous demonstrations of kingdom power, he is directing the energy to, here's the point. The point is discipleship to me. And I find it kind of chilling that the author's subtext is that these demonstrations don't produce discipleship. Because at, at the very beginning of chapter 8, when Jesus came down from the mountain and many people followed him, many people were amazed by his teaching with authority, and now more people seem to be amazed by what Jesus is doing. But by the end of this, it seems like there's only 12 in the boat. There's only a boat full. And so if the purpose of these power demonstrations was discipleship, then did these demonstrations fail? You know, kind of not achieve what they were going for. I'd say no, because it showed who Jesus was. It showed that he's the subject matter expert on all of life. And if you're a student, you would never study under a professor who just wasn't good at his job. You would never learn how to manage your finances from someone who's running from creditors. Jesus is demonstrating that he is trustworthy, that we can put all, all of our life into his hands and trust him with all of it. The miracles demonstrate his authority to be trusted in all of life. And, and we, we get to choose. In, in God's sovereignty, he has given us choice. That's what makes us responsible. God is sovereign. And he says, we're responsible. Therefore, we're responsible. But the point of all these demonstrations is providing evidence to encourage people, choose discipleship to Jesus. So, uh, yeah, next slide. Here we go. Yeah, if you know me, 
I like charts and graphs. I was an economics major. So these are little squiggly lines that, that are supposed to uh, model the miracles, the, the miraculous demonstrations of kingdom power that we read about. And they point to discipleship to Jesus. You might not be able to see it, but there's little arrows at the end pointing to discipleship. So I see this passage leaving us with three questions. If, if these miraculous demonstrations that we read about, and maybe you've had some in your life or you've heard about miraculous demonstrations of kingdom power, it, it leaves us with some questions. I, I always read these texts with these types of questions. So if I want to follow Jesus, if I'm willing to live, you know, like he is the king and he is the subject matter expert on all of life, the first question is, am I choosing Jesus above all else? Because we cannot wiggle out of Jesus' statement, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is not setting the bar high so that people would, would, would not choose him. That's not what he's doing. He's setting the bar high because that's the most loving thing he can do for us. If we treat God as a cosmic vending machine where we punch, punch the buttons, come to church, come to small group, say a prayer, read our Bible, and man, I just want that thing to come down there and give it to me. We're shortchanging ourselves of the life that God created us to live. God loves you too much. God loves all of us too much to let us treat him like a cosmic vending machine. We must continually ask this question, am I choosing Jesus above all else? And as a single, maybe, maybe it's, am I choosing Jesus above my desire to be married? And then as a married person, am I choosing Jesus above my desire to please my spouse? Because again, if we choose Jesus above our desire to excel in our workplace, above our desire to be well-liked, all those things will come in their appropriate measure. Seek first the kingdom and all these other things, they will be added to you, but, but you, won't, you won't seek your satisfaction from those things alone because you know that they'll never satisfy you ultimately. And I'm convinced that this is our main work. Our main work is continuing to choose Jesus above all else. And so, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about, if you've been around, you know, we talk, we've talked about quiet times. We've talked about small groups. You know, like, I, we put in a lot of work to make Sunday morning happen. But ultimately, none of that matters if we're not plugged in to his activity. None of that matters if we are not living a life of ongoing surrender to the person of Jesus. Lots of people have intentions to do good things, but, but they don't follow through. Just like these people in the story who said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Well, unless you ask that. <laughs> I mean, just think about the YMCA every January. That's people full of good intentions, but the follow through often isn't there. Think about college classrooms every fall. They're full, you know, the first couple weeks. And then you see people dropping out for one reason or another. The human condition 
is one where we often have the right intentions, but not the power to see it through. And I think we just have to be honest about why are we seeking to do what we're doing? And why have we in the past failed to do what we've intended to do? It's always about who we trust. It's always about what we're seeking, who we're following. And this is where the gospel comes in. The gospel provides us the why that is strong enough to stand under and through every single challenge. So we do meet on Sundays. We meditate on scripture. We meet in small groups, but we do so in order to keep connected to the powerful why, to keep the why in front of us. That's why we go to work, why we're loving our family, why we work on our budget, why we cook, clean, shop, play, because in this moment, I choose Jesus above all else. He's given me this to do. He's given me this to enjoy. Therefore, I go. That, that must continually be our why, and we must keep reconnecting to it. And then the second question, which we're going to continue to unpack as we go through these chapters, is should I expect demonstrations of power? We see Jesus doing these things, and I'll just give you a little, uh, I'll give you uh, a little spoiler alert. In chapter 10, at the end of these miraculous works of Jesus, he basically tells his disciples, okay, go and do likewise. And so we're left with this tension like, Jesus, should I expect demonstrations of power in my life? And, and again, these, this is a complex matter, so here's my two-minute answer for today. Yes, you should expect demonstrations of power, but don't expect a miracle every year. Your birthday's not a miracle, but happy birthday. Um, welcome to church. Hope you leave encouraged. But I'm just saying, if you ask for the miraculous and don't get it, but if you're asking for God's power because you, you want to know him, you want to experience him, because you're trying to connect to his heart in the midst of family suffering, in the midst of your own suffering, if you don't get the miraculous answer to prayer that you were looking for, but if you get closer to Jesus, you got better. That ties into the first point where this ongoing surrender, it's, it's the real work. And so demonstrations of power, sure. Like I think we should expect that, but don't mishear me and think that asking for miracles is, is what the power demonstration should look like. I, personally, I believe miracles still happen. Um, and you can disagree with me and still be a member in, in our church. That's, that's fine. But this leads into point number three. If we can expect demonstrations of God's kingdom power here and now, how? What expectations should we have? How is the power demonstrated? So here's a few verses that I think will help shape up an appropriate and healthy framework. 1 Corinthians 4.20, uh, the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus was demonstrating with these miraculous demonstrations of power. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and discipline or self-discipline in some translations. Romans 14.17, the, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, 
but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So those are character qualities. Right living, peace, and joy. And then this is the main one, if I could focus on just one or leave you with one, is Galatians 5, when Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify or give in to the desires of the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious, and he gives a whole list, like sexual immorality, selfishness, division, envy. But, he says, what the Spirit produces is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, against such things, there's no law. Which is like, have at it. Have as much as you want. You won't overindulge on these things. And that's, that's essentially the way that kingdom power, you can count on this, is what I'm saying. Count on this. Power is demonstrated through the killing off of bad desires and the production of new character within you. And you're like, Ben, that sounds really normal. That sounds kind of boring. <laughs> That's healing. And the church is not about nice people becoming nicer. This is broken people becoming healed in every part of life. So let's see the diagram again. Not only do the demonstrations point to Jesus, that those demonstrations invite us into discipleship initially or into deeper discipleship, but discipleship, hanging around Jesus, it produces demonstrations of kingdom power. So I've got straight lines to kind of show like, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit being evidenced in your life, uh, that, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Being with Jesus actually does produce real change in us and through us to the world. And there might be a couple of squiggly lines, but those aren't, those really aren't special. I mean, you know, put them in your backpack if it happens and keep, keep hiking along in your walk with Jesus. But um, discipleship to Jesus, it should change us. And, and at the end of those arrows, whether they're straight or squiggly lines, it should point people and it should point us into more of Jesus, that we want to know him more and more. So I'll close with this as a church, and this is very encouraging to me um, as we've, we've grown as a church as the last three years, but here's, here's just the bottom line. We will never do anything more significant than follow Jesus. And I don't, I don't care if you're 20 years old or if you're 90 years old. You personally, you will never do anything more significant with your life than follow Jesus. So let's pray together. Jesus, it is true that uh, you are that great. Um, following you, whether it's in ordinary life of, or what seems like ordinary mundane life of parenting and work and budgets and, and bills and all of that, following you is, is great. Even when it doesn't feel like it. 
So we surrender our preferences. We surrender our whole life to you. Talk to him about your desires, your will, your ambitions, your plans. And we don't choose you, Jesus, for the power, but we recognize without you, we we have no power. Help us to receive, whether it's ordinary people loving us or extraordinary answers to prayer, help us to receive uh, the many pieces of evidence that are around us and have been around us that, that point us to discipleship to you, Jesus.